I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to this podcast, which is an abridged version of the television interview that I did with Craig Charles as part of my In Conversation series for W. This podcast is brought to you by UKTV Play, the free on-demand service. Tonight, I'm going to be in conversation with someone whose CV includes being an actor, a poet, a comedian, a DJ, and a television presenter. He also grew up on an estate around the corner from me now. Tonight, I'm going to be in conversation with Craig Charles. I said, I said in the introduction that you grew up near me, Nan, which, to be fair, I don't think I'm ever going to be able to say... That's fair enough. ...any other guest ever. But where does your Nan live? Well, my Nan lived in Knighton. Okay. Finchham Road, Knighton. You, you mm. grew up in, in Cancel Farm, didn't you? Did you go Farm, back yeah. to Toxteth? No, we, I, yeah, we, we, I started off in a place called Margaret Street, opposite Margaret Street Baths, when I was one of some of my first memories. Um, and that was like a bomb... That was, I was still playing on bomb sites in, like, 1968. You know, they yeah. clear the bomb sites. Then everyone got moved from the centre of town to all these council estates on the, on, yeah. the, on the edge, Skemmersdale, Kirby and Council Farm, so I got moved to Barron's Hay and Council Farm, so spent the first ten years there. Then we went back to sort of Smithdown Road, Waverty. All of those places are in Liverpool, if anyone has a guess, <laughs> by the way. I was I... thinking, you know, if we're like... We... My, my kids say to me every time I go back to Liverpool, Dad, your Scouse accent gets much worse when you're talking to Scousers. These are going to need subtitles by oh, the end. Listen, <laughs> I know people have turned on and thought they brought back the clangers. <laughs> <laughs> but for you... For you growing up in Cancel, because we were actually, the way my family was, it was the same. We lived at Mill Road, the middle of town, just mm-hmm. by everything. And then when they cleared everything, the, the, what they regarded as the slum clearance, which pissed me dad off, because <laughs> he just decorated. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, We're knocking your houses down. It was a choice of mm-hmm. where to go Skemmersdale, Kirby, mm-hmm. Cancel Farm was an option. We ended up further out in a place called Winsford, because okay. my dad got a job in a factory at the same time. But for you, all of a sudden, as a displaced family, mm. that placed you in an environment, from what I can tell, yeah. that had both its positive and negative effects on you. Oh, yeah, well, I mean, it's free you should mention Mill Road. I was born in Mill Road Hospital, yeah, yeah, so yeah. there you go. But, yeah, I mean, when we moved out to Canny Farm, we were kind of like the only black family, really, especially in my bit of the Cantal Farm, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And because, um, like, most of the black people in Liverpool, they lived in Toxteth, you know, Liverpool 8. It wasn't even called Toxteth then, yeah. was it? It was called Liverpool 8. Liverpool 8. We, only, we only found out it was called Toxteth when the riots happened. Because everyone went, it came on the news, there's been rioting in Toxteth, and everyone in Liverpool's going, where's Toxteth? <laughs> it was Liverpool 8. But it was like, so we were in, sort of like, kind of quite isolated, really, and sort of grew up. Sometimes I grew up wishing I was white, to be honest, John, because you don't want to be different, do you? But, you don't want to mom, stick out like... Your mum was white and your dad was black. Yeah, yeah. And so when you said you were the only black family, I mean, how did that manifest itself for oh, you? Oh, you know, it was sort of like... Uh, to be sort of like name-calling, to be like... People wouldn't want to sit up next to you on buses. I mean, 
I did this on a, on a TV show once and I got a, a, quite a reaction from Liverpool saying, oh, you're lying, blah, blah, blah. I'm not lying, I'm not slagging Liverpool down. It wasn't just Liverpool that was like oh, this in the 60s. It was, it was everywhere, yeah. yeah, you know. And, like, you know, times have changed an awful lot since then uh, and for the better, you know. Then again, you know, it could always come back again. But did that give you a sense of identity as a kid that you were different than everyone else early on? Mm. And the, because what strikes me about you, particularly when we start more about your career, start talking about your career, it, it's it's so segmented. You've got such a varied career, and and most people have the confidence to do one. Mm. And it just struck me when when I read about you being the only black family, being quite isolated. Obviously, you've got your two brothers. Mm. Uh, that it must give you some strength to go. I, I can I can beat yeah. I can beat what people are telling me I am. Yeah, honestly, it was my mum in in a way. She gave me this like all of us really this need to kind of attain and achieve and and to do well because she she said if you go for a job. Uh, and you've got the same qualifications as the next guy, the next guy will get it. And so we were always kind of... Which might not be a healthy thing, really, but we, I was always sort of, like, sort of determined to sort of, like, try and uh, try and do well. But, like, you know, they wanted me to be a doctor or a lawyer or something like, you know, so, so, some professional and all that. So you can imagine when I was 14 and I went to the careers office and came back from the careers office and mum said, how did that go? And she, I said, uh, they, they said, I haven't got... I, I don't... I'm not going to do well in my chosen career. I, I, he said, why, what did you tell me you wanted to do? I said, I told him I wanted to be a poet. But <laughs> was like, you what? I got a right hide and that ain't a poet. You gotta get a proper job. Bang, bang, bang. And um, yeah, I, I kind of wanted to be a poet. But what is it with you as a kid that, that made you have that self-belief? I don't know, I suppose I had one good teacher who was an English teacher. And he, you know, and I said, you do what you're good at. And, and the English teacher sort of noticed that I was good at things and put me in for a competition, uh, which I won. And, um... Oh, well, I go, don't underplay it. No. What well, got, it was the, the, the Guardian. Well, it was like a, yeah, the Manchester Guardian, you know, like... Um, yeah, uh, it was the of... Manchester Guardian where you went in for a competition. How old were you? I was 13. 13. Yeah. You won. How old was the runner-up? 33, something like that. <laughs> but, like... <laughs> oh, no, oh. Can you remember a poem? It was, oh, yeah, uh... Don't hate me for this. I want to feel your bum, but I know you'll slap me hand. And every time I see you smile, it makes me alter ego stand. I want to kiss your lips, but I'm scared about my breath. I want to hold your hand, but I'm all frightened to death. I want to drop formalities and uh, let my fingers roam, but my mum's banging on the ceiling telling me to take you home. I want to take you to the pictures, but your study's in the way. And leaving can be grieving when you always want to stay. I want to marry you this instant and let my feelings delve. But Dad said I'll have to wake because I'm only 12. <laughs> so that was... That was like, you know... Uh, no, you what! <laughs> The sad thing is I can still remember it. I know. It. I just dropped you in it there, thinking yeah. you were going to go, oh, no, no. Yeah. I wasn't expecting you to, to uh. knock it out. But <laughs> that's... Steady. The... <laughs> 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 I didn't fair... go that far. I only wanted to hold a hand. I know. <laughs> but to be fair, that, that bit about entering a poetry competition, mm. uh, winning a poetry competition, that was an open competition. It wasn't... Uh, that's why I asked, asked who, how old the youngest, the, the, the runner-up was, because mm. you were obviously the youngest in it. And that, t that talent, that raw talent was obviously there. Mm. The, 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 now, I know from going to a comprehensive school, and I know because... Uh, I wrote poems at school as well. So I wrote, oh, John, give I, me I one. Poetry. Come on, you had me on. Come on, give me one. Yeah, I can remember one. Go on. I can remember one, because this... I won a prize with this as well. 
Uh, <laughs> now, and I was about the same age, so yeah. we've seen your standard. Mm -hmm. uh, and mine was called uh, My Chair in the Corner. Go on. So let me remember it. Uh, my Chair in the Corner. It's just an ordinary chair in an ordinary corner. You don't notice my chair in the corner. It just sits there in the corner until you sit on my chair in the corner and then you see everything in the room, except, of course, my chair in the corner. That's brilliant. That was some of that. That's really... That's really quite deep. But for you, as a, as a person, and you, you found a passion mm. and you made a job out of it. Yeah, and at quite a, a young age, really, because I was doing all the clubs and stuff. And, um, and uh, I say Roger McGough and Brian Patton, these, like, for yeah. me, in, in my field, were, like, proper, you know, well-established poets. But also with you, <coughs> the, the, the environment that you entered mm -hmm. as a performance poet, uh, came at the same time as the explosion of the alternative comedy scene. That's so it. it was so ripe for it, wasn't mm -hmm. it? It was so ripe to have your voice oh, yeah. in there. I mean, when I think about it, you know, I did the first series of Saturday Night Live and um, and the regulars were Ben Elton, myself, Fry and Laurie, um, Rick Mail and Aid Edmondson, Harry Enfield, and, like, we were at the forefront of this, uh, of this brand-new but, but alternative at comedy. At that time, you were, what, 18? Yeah, 18. You are 18, so they're, they're doing they're it. They're a lot older than me. Yeah, yeah, and they've done the Cambridge Footlights. They're still yeah, from yeah. another world than you. Oh, I, 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 I felt that, to be honest, as well. Looking back on it, when I did make such a splash on Saturday Night Live and... And the, um, and the newspapers were writing about it. The cover of the Times and stuff like this were saying I was the most notable find on Saturday Night Live. And because of the riots and because of all that stuff, um, people thought I was an angry young man, but I wasn't really angry. I just, I'd just seen these things and I wanted to describe them in poetry and, you know, and make them tense and, you know, electric. And the atmosphere at those gigs was brilliant because punk was happening as well. And yeah. punk, you know, and it was like, it was just, it was a different sort of time of entertainment. Some of the gigs I got, people used to spit at you while you were on stage and I've stuff like that. I've done a few you know? like that, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I saw you in Manchester last month. <laughs> <laughs> I'd been doing um, Saturday Live with Paul Jackson, and, it, and the next show was about to happen, and, um, and he was leaving. I said, why are you leaving? It's Saturday Night Live. Yeah, it was a big show on television. And he goes, now I'm going to do this curious, quaint BBC Two sitcom called Red Dwarf. I thought, huh? Tell me about it. And he goes, because I really admired Paul Jackson. He did the oh, young sure ones and all good, that. Yeah. You know, he had, his, he had the Midas touch. Like, oh, That's great. Tell me about it. So he said, look, I'm going to send you... This is the right on 80s, remember? I'm going to send you the script, because I want you... I need you I need you to tell me if you think the part of the cat is racist. So I said, all right. Send me the script. You read, was was the it script. written as a black cat? Yeah, yeah, it was written as a black cat. Yes, yeah, Frankenstein, my cat. And um, and he and he, he was like half James Brown and half yeah. um, you know sort of like kind of like a real funky character, pink suits, crepe crepe sole shoes, little Richard. So I read the part and I said, um, no, no, I don't think the cat's racist. Can I be Dave Lister? And he said three words, and they were almost Scottish. The first two were Getty, right? <laughs> so um, I went, wow. Um, I kept knocking on his door and phoning him up and saying, at least, at least let me read for it. And um, so they come in and let me do this audition and I was awful in the audition. I was so, so nervous because I really, I just knew something about this show was, was so well written. I just knew something about this show was going to be all right. And um, what I didn't know behind the scenes was that uh, Rob and Doug had been writing this thing for years and years and years and they're from Manchester and there's no greater animosity between two cities in the whole of England than there is between Manchester and Liverpool. 
and there's no way they wanted the hero of the piece to be a scouser, right? <laughs> so they kept knocking me back and knocking me back. But in the end, I went read a second time, and um, and they very reluctantly said, oh, "All right, we'll give it a go." Ah, oh, come on! Don't say very reluctantly. I mean, I heard Hugh Laurie was oh. the other option. Well, yeah, they, it was Alan Rickman and Fred Molina. Right. Yeah. Now they went on to have lousy careers, didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> Here's me still, like a broken down old TV star, still peddling this show in space. But the, when you say still peddling the show, it's 28 years mm. that it, you know, it's, it's having a resurgence now on mm. Dave and so on. But it was massive. I mean, we're talking eight, nine million viewers. On BBC Two, yeah, it's the most watched comedy on BBC Two. I don't think it'll ever be beaten now. Uh, but yeah, we, at our peak, we were getting sort of 8.9 to 9 million viewers. And um, I went and took another show on called Robot Wars. And um, I was filming both at the same time. And at one stage, I remember walking, I remember walking into the old broadcasting house. Yeah. And they used to have the monitors on the, on the roof like that, which told you the last week's like um, viewing figures. I just remember walking in there for a meeting one day and uh, Red Dwarf was uh, number one with 8.9 million. And Robot Wars was number two with 6.4 million. And I just thought, rumours of my death, greatly exaggerated. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is sponsored by UK TV Play, the free on-demand service, where you can watch the TV shows you love from Dave, Yesterday, Really and Drama, wherever you want, whenever you want. The home of BAFTA-nominated series Taskmaster and the critically acclaimed Red Dwarf, alongside other UK TV Play exclusive including The White Princess and Most Haunted. UK TV Play offers free access to thousands of hours of comedy, drama, documentaries and paranormal TV, all for free. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you're in something like Red Dwarf and you, you, you're filming it, obviously you film it before it goes out, so, so you can't judge really the reaction or how good it is until it goes out. Mm. What was the point where you all went, Jesus, this, this is a hit? Oh, well, no, let me tell you, let me tell you. The first review I ever read of Red Dwarf, I've had some bad reviews in the time, don't get me wrong. Like, uh, uh, Mr Charles's performance reminds me of a cheese and ham sandwich without the cheese and bread. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and my first review of Red Dwarf was, this is the mission, this, this is the voyage of the starship Red Dwarf. It's mission to boldly go where many comedies have gone before, up its own backside. Very at home in this part of the television anatomy is Craig Charles. Where does he come from? Is he from a distant planet called Renta Liverpoolian, or was he spontaneously generated by a TV screen? No matter, Charles and this series are heading for a sticky end. 29 years later. <laughs>
when you get the call to go into Coronation Street, you, you, you get a call to go into an institution, but it's also something, again, a big step away from anything that you've already done. Yeah. You see, a part of you thinking, I'm not sure this is right for me, or did you just grab it straight away? I just, I didn't even say how much. I just said, like, when can I start? Do you know what I mean? I didn't intend to stay there for 10 years, but to be, like, an actor in Corrie, to me, growing up with my mum, we used to have to watch it every Monday. It was only on, first it was only on, on a Monday and a Wednesday or something like that. Yeah. But we, we watched it religiously, you know? And um, so when they asked, it was like, wow, they've asked me to go on Corrie. Do you had yeah. a few in-jokes, didn't you? Like uh, the odd Red Dwarf poster on the wall yeah. and stuff like that. They were lucky, because I do a lot of DJing and, I, and, I, um, and a lot of soul and northern soul and kind of funk and stuff like that. Um, uh, so they let me put bits of me into the show. It's so much yeah. easier because it's got to be really realistic, Coronation Street, you know. The people who, who the proper thespians, they're found out really quickly and they're on the bike, you know, to be honest. Because you want it to be as down-to-earth and real life as you possibly can, you know. There's no, uh, st no, there's no, there's no space for grandstand and stuff like that. So it's nice if you can get bits of, like, your personality, bits of your hobbies, bits of your interests into the character because it just makes it so much easier to play. But you left, you mm. left. What, what, what made you say 10 years is enough? Oh, God. Um, I didn't really want to leave. I, I wanted some time off. And um, basically what happened is I, they invited me to go into the jungle. And, um, and I went, yeah, you know, because that's the only show that my family ever... I've got a 13-year-old, a 19-year-old and a 28-year-old. And, like, the one thing that we'd all sit down and, and watch as a family is I'm a celebrity, get, get me out of here. So um, I'm in the main camp and I saw who was there and I thought, well, you know, you know, if I can play it cool, because it is a game, you play it cool, I've got a chance here, you know. Yeah, I've stayed for quite a while, like, you know, so I was settling in. Then the day of the first task, they, they say, uh, Craig, uh, can you go and see the doctor? And I thought the doctor wants to see me because, you know, it's all PC and all that, and they wanted to do a psychological assessment of me because I'd been in the jungle jail. And, um, and, and I thought, and I'll just say, yeah, I'm fine, great, let's go on with the game. But they, they just said, uh, there's no way they can sugarcoat it. Uh, the psychologist said, she was lovely about it, she said, Craig, your brother's dead. And I was like, what? I'm 52 now, he was 52 when he died, so it was two years ago. Yeah. I'm nearly 53, so I'm nearly three years ago. So it was like, there's two series been since then. And when you're in, like, Australia, in the middle of, like, the jungle, and you, it, it's not, you can't get home, you can't get home that quick, yeah. you know? It was just, and you've been, like, you've been eating two bowls of porridge a day and drinking water that, that you'd have to boil it that smelt of smoke. And um, it's just... He always had terrible time at our days. <laughs> he always had terrible time. It was funny because I saw the clip and we were looking at clips of playing the bit where you walk back in and explain to everyone. I, and I thought, I don't, I don't really want to play that because it was so hard on you mm. to be in such a public place and to lose someone, your brother Dean, who was so close to you. Mm. I mean, you shared the bedroom with yeah, him. Yeah, we shared the bedroom with him for like the first 16, 17 years of my life, you know. And, um, and yeah, it was like they didn't do anything wrong. I, I, you know, you're, no. on, you're on, you're on, you're on telly. You're on a live yeah, reality show. You know, they have to kind of show it. But um, but uh, it was for me. It was just a bit of a kick in the love spuds. Do you know what I mean? Because sometimes um, I've, my life's had a way of oh, it's going really great, and then I go and do something stupid. And but you, you, you think you know when you I don't know how do you put it, John? But you know when you think you. 
you might even have a chance of winning this and you you know you might go on to greater things and then and then and then your brother dies and and we'd not been speaking um, um we'd fallen out you know we'd had a family disagreement we'd fallen out it's just one of those family yeah, rounds yeah, you yeah, can't yeah, even yeah. remember yeah. yeah and um and he texted me um and I, I wasn't allowed to tell him when i was going in and he texted me a couple of times before i went in saying like you know craig it's dean just want to chat blah 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 and i'd kind of ignored him i thought look i, I can't really deal with this right now what i'll do is i'll go in the jungle uh do that uh, come back out we'll all be together by christmas and um that never happened and it, it, talking about you having strength of character and doing things against type dean was a policeman dean was the first black inspector in liverpool he was two years older than me and um and he always fought my battles um because he was bigger than me you know um i'm quite slight really He's, he was like mm. And um, he'd fight my battles for me if I was getting bullied in the in the playground. Dean would be in there. He was like so determined. He went to university, um, got a job as a policeman. Then my life unravelled, and he stood by me. So it made his a career in the police uh, not viable anymore. Then he started started his own company. Then he became a teacher, passed all the teaching exams. So he was really driven, really really driven. And he was fit as a fiddle. He ran marathons and. Uh, cycling to work, fit as a fiddle, cycling to work, got into the changing rooms, dropped dead. Heart, um, he had, a, um, he had a, a blood clot which reached his heart, buff, dead. So what happened was, um, I'd been in, Red, uh, in Coronet Street for, for 10 years, and I just thought to myself, you know, if I, if I pop my clogs now, how will I feel? And I just thought, you know what, I wouldn't mind some more new adventures, you know? I mean, because yeah. life's just an adventure, isn't it? You know, I mean, it's a series of, it's a series of, happenings and, and I just wanted some more adventures so I went to them and said can I have a bit of time off I've been there 10 years and uh, Red Dwarf wanted to come back and he wanted to make two series two more series of Red Dwarf now they'd let me off to make Red Dwarf 10 and they wouldn't make Red Dwarf without me so basically Red Dwarf was going to stop happening if I didn't say yes and stayed in Corrie so so when Corrie said well now Craig you know you've had time to make Red Dwarf 10 so basically it's them and us I had to I had to go for them you know what I mean you said you know Dean's career became untenable mm. In what, the police, because of you, what, 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 I, what I, an ex-girlfriend of mine accused me of rape in 1994. Say so they got my ups and downs, John, ups and downs. Yeah. Uh, accused me of rape in 1994, and I got stuck in jail on me. Th back in back in them, they didn't. Back in then, they didn't accuse you and like then go all away and sort it out. It was a different legal system then. If you got accused of rape, you went back inside until your trial, you know. And um, so anyway, I, so they put me on remand, and our dean defended me and said this can't have happened, gave a load of various reasons, blah, 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 blah. So then he let me out on bail because dean had turned up and... And he was on the fast track. He was going to be—he was going to be a black chief inspector, you know, because mm. Dean had turned up and sort of made statements against the police and how they were handling it and the process, call it yeah. uh, the process. Blah, blah, blah. He—that's where yeah, his career was, was going on, yeah. to stay, like you know. So he stopped that and created another life as well. So he'd always been there for me, you know. He was thrown out of court. You were yeah, completely clearly. acquitted. Yeah. But that period, that ninety-day period or whatever mm. it was, that three months, where you don't know what's going to happen, yeah. you don't know what 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 evidence is being mm. collated or not being collated, and you don't know how a jury's going to go with you. That's got to be. That's yeah, got to be. You've got to be a believer in things as well, John, because you know if, if if something didn't happen, they can't make it like it did. Do you know what I mean? So, basically, I just had to wait for them to the process dictated that I had to wait for them to get all their ducks in order and see that this couldn't happen. I mean, it, when they saw it couldn't happen, sorry, for, uh, sorry, Mr. Charles. But like what they said to me was, sorry, that system system worked for you, Mr. Charles. You've been accused of a crime. You've cleared your name in a court of law. The system's worked for you. But it hasn't really, has it? Because those sort of crimes kind of never go away. 
Hence, yeah. like, you know, 20 odd years later, where I'm talking about it again, you know. Yeah, but you'd be talking about it, mm. not so much if it was an accusation of a sex crime, I'd be talking mm. to you if you're accused of burglary and you're put in yeah. jail. No, Somebody enough. who's famous is put in jail mm. for three months. 100 days, over 100 days. Yeah, you know, that's, that's, that, there's a, a double edged sword to that, because you can go in with everyone patting on your back, but you can also go in with people want to want to get a notch on the head. Oh, mate, definitely, yeah. Uh, you have to be really careful. But I grew up in Caddy Farm and Wavertree, mate, you know, with the helps, like, you the know. background helps. <clears throat> and he put me in Wandsworth Jail, one of the toughest nicks in, in Britain as well, you know, on A-wing with the lads. Yeah. There's nothing like there's nothing like jail for widening your circle of friends. I was going to tell you that. In a lot of ways. <laughs> <laughs> no, not widening your circle. <laughs> widening your circle of friends. I just it? say you're a good-looking lad. <laughs> <laughs> But you can you, 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 you talk about the ups and downs. Mm. The thing that happened when you when the tabloids got you in Coronation Street when you had the issue. With oh drugs yeah, the no, issue with drugs, Jesus. Um, I mean that that cover of, cover of all the papers, mate. No, no. They but, call me from Page Craig. <laughs> but so, where everything that I, I, I've read about that, because when it happened, I I, I ignore it because I don't really read the papers, since, yeah. particularly not the tabloid stuff. And and I just thought I was just, I know I didn't know you obviously. I just thought it's one of those things. When I've read about it, you were saying obviously you, you when your mum died. Mm. You, you were first exposed to drugs, but you got over it. You haven't mm. got, an, you know, I, I suppose, an addiction. Mm. But you were under so much pressure at that time. It seemed a way of getting out of yourself. Oh no, because that was just, that was just, that was probably one of my, the lowest points of my life, John. To be honest, because um, we just bought this house in Old Bersledon, in just outside of Southampton, on the River Hamble, you know. Yeah. Picturesque, glorious, like, really, really nice. And we'd moved in there. And about three weeks after I, I moved in, they phoned up and said, do you want to be in Coronation Street? And I went, yeah. So I came... So Coronation Street in Manchester. Away, yeah. I was doing my radio show, uh, Craig Charles Funk and Soul Show, on a Friday and Saturday in London. Um, then coming to Southampton for a day, like a Sunday, to see my family, and then back to Manchester film a week. Do, 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 do. And um, plus, my dad, uh, who... My mum died when I was young. My mum died when I was uh, 24. She was only 46 when she died. But my dad, who had, had a great relationship... I looked like my dad looked, you know, and, um, and I just, you know, we just loved him dearly and uh, miss him terribly sort of thing. But he fell ill at that time as well. And, um, and uh, do you know what? It was me repeating the same old, same old behaviour again. When my mum died, I, I got into drugs. When my dad died, I did again. And it was just a case of... I was, like, stuck in this little flat in Manchester, missing my family, working, like, 14 hours a day, then travelling vast amounts of motorways all the time like that. So, you know, it was just a way of coping, like... But the way it happened was... So nasty, wasn't it? Nasty, yeah. so underhand. You, you were in a car driven by someone you yeah, thought was your mate. Yeah, mate of mine. He was my driver. He'd been my driver for three years. Uh, phoned up the, uh, a tabloid newspaper, the Daily Mirror, and uh, they put a hidden camera in my car, and so saw me doing it and taking it and all that, then splashed it all over the um, papers and stuff like that. See, so. see that? Like, like if somebody's taking drugs in the back of a car mm. on their own, mm. they're not doing it because they're having a party. No. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. If someone's taking crack cocaine in the back of a car on their own, travelling, mm. something's wrong. Yeah, yeah. And so for a newspaper to go, let's use that and get a 
salacious story. Oh, yeah, there, yeah. There's something about our society and there's mm. something about that your mate, that editor, mm. the people who bought that story and the people who gave it legs that go, like, shouldn't we be better people than that? That's that's potentially dangerous. You're a strong character. You could get over that. But if somebody's got a problem, they put it in the paper. There's a chance that they're not going to sort themselves out the way you did. I was dead lucky that I had a wife, Jackie, who I adore and adores me. I had, um, I had kids who know what I'm really like. And um, I had a reason to get better, if you know what I mean. Um, I, had, I, had, I, had enough, I had a job that I loved and I had enough people who knew what yeah. I was like to say, um, let's care, let's care for him, let's care about him, let's get him well, rather than let's sack him, let's fuck him off, let's get rid. Um, so then I went and sort of got well again. But I'm dead addictive, John, you know. You've got, po you've got positive and you've got negative addictions, haven't you? Yeah. So, like, I, I am now addicted to, like, positive addictions, you know. Like, I work a lot, I love funk and soul, I get obsessive about it. Um, you are almost encyclopedic about funk and <laughs> soul and you've got your own album, the Craig Charles. Funk and Soul Club album, yeah. yeah. And um, DJing, DJing, again, it's another thing that I just have this vision of you DJing and the audience being filled with those fellas from Robot Wars doing this. <laughs> and the Red Dwarf audience in the corner and then people, people with their old next more, you know, the poets in the corner. And you go, no, it's none of them. It's none, none of them. of them are going. There's another audience altogether that you're appealing to there. Yeah, there's the fucking soul crowd. We've been doing it quite a while now. We've kind of built it up from, from what was kind of small niche sort of brand. Now we play big places, big festivals, Main stages, yeah. snuck away in the tent. You even, you even tweeted once. It was like I, I'm in the car waiting for the kids or something like that. Listening to Craig Charles from Console, so bleep or something like that. Oh yeah, no, yeah. I love it. I yeah. really do. I yeah. like it because it's my era of music. You yeah. know when? Because for us, we're a similar age and come mm. from a you know a similar area. And I don't know what it was like for people of our age growing up that down here, but we had Northern Soul. Yeah, we had Northern Soul, and I was lucky enough. Because uh, my dad came over in about fifty-eight or something like that. One of my first memories. He came over to. He came over from. Uh, I was going to say the West Indies, but he wasn't from the West. He's from South America, a place called Guyana, which is like a massive country next to Venezuela and Brazil. But like, it's kind of called the West Indies because they all go, "Why, you know, me can't keep up with this rhythm." You know, they've all got the kind of West Indian accent and stuff like that. But he came over to Guyana in um, about in nineteen fifty-eight with like a, a pocket full of change and a bag full of records. You know, he was a merchant sailor. So one of my first memories is my mum and dad um, swinging around the kitchen. Ray Charles, I've got a woman, and all this kind of stuff, you know. So when after Liverpool was dancing to the Beatles, we were listening to Aretha Franklin and Otis Redding and Harry Belafonte yeah. and Ray Charles and stuff like that. So I had this kind of musical education early on, you know. And then, of course, Northern Soul came. And like, you know, the Wigan Casino, I never went to the Wigan Casino, but all my mates did, I wasn't allowed. My no. mum and dad were really same. strict, I yeah. Because people would do all night, I mean, yeah. to try and... There'll be people who don't know Northern Soul. How would you mm. describe Northern Soul to people it's who don't? It's kind of four to the floor. Basically, Northern Soul is probably all of those Motown and Soul hits that never quite made it, <laughs> you know? Yeah. They're kind of like... And they appeal to kind of label sniffers like, yeah. and sort of crate diggers and people like who like rare things, but like... Uh, it's great undiscovered gems. It's got a four to the floor beat, like that, and they make their own dancers up to it and all this kind of stuff. Oh, God, like, like I remember, because it was a point, as I say, it was similar in age. It was a point where 
you know, there was the, the mods became out in the rockers with the jam and punk rock, and mm. then and then there was a point where Northern Soul was kind of cool, and I'll never forget this. I remember seeing our Eddie, my older brother, <laughs> who's five years older than me. You know what it's like having an older brother. Yeah. You get their clothes, don't you? Yeah. And I remember seeing him. He was about thirteen, and he was stood at the top of our stairs, and he had a pair of white flares on, yeah. like. Eight button flares. Oh, six. I used to have a six. Six, waist, six. six button yeah, waist yeah, band. yeah, yeah. Six, eight. Yeah. Sometimes you can mad people had ten. I think yeah. it was six or eight, whatever. Yeah. So you had six buttons going down, like the yeah. big waistband, yeah. and then these like pair of curtains. Yeah. They, they were, you couldn't see the gap in his leg. They were like 14 inch flares over his shoes. And then you had the big the bu- square yeah, pocket square on it. They were called Birmingham bags, weren't they? Birmingham bags. Big square pocket that you could actually get a 12 inch amb- album in each pocket like that. He, he was stood at the top of the stairs, this vision, <laughs> and honest to God, the waistband was that right. <laughs> His head and arms over his kecks like that. And I remember looking at him thinking, I can't wait till they're mine. <laughs> <laughs> because it, it, that, that period, that, that music really moves you. You couldn't listen to it without moving. No. And your, your radio show's the same. Oh, it, thank it, you, man. It, and your DJing, mm. your DJing's... You know, the same, it's just, it's a party from the morning it begins, oh, it but is. it's a journey. But it's, I'm lucky, it's, I, it's party music, we kind of deal yeah. in the golden era, black American music, and the European and the worldwide spot response to that music now, like people, people are still making it, people are recording music now and touring it now, and so there's, you know, it's it's, it's vital, it's vibrant, it, it's it's instant, but it's, it's not a history lesson. A lot of the music I play is being recorded now, you know, so um, you just... You can't be still to that music. It's no, a pure no. party in a oh, box, you know. I'm onto a, I'm onto a winner every time. Oh, I can't goodness. play a bad record. You're you know? great, and uh, apparently you're available for weddings. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? If you're you already ever... married. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> On that point, by the way, have you ever done a documentary about it? No, we've been we've been in talks now to do some funk and soul documentaries. I like watching music on the telly. You know those old documentaries on BBC yeah. Four is brilliant for like music documentaries. James Brown saves Boston uh, and things like that. You know? I like, but every time they do one of them, they always do the Bee Gees, nineteen sixty-seven, and I can't tell you how many people freeze frame Barry Gibb <laughs> yeah. and go, "Don't you look like him?" From <laughs> Keppel Road, Manchester, that's where they used to live, I tell you. <laughs> Every time we get people on the show, we ask them to bring a photograph mm. that, that that's important to you. Mm. And and you picked a photograph that um when I asked you about it, you said I can't find it. Yeah. And we eventually found a copy of it. Th- th- this is the picture. Oh. Can you tell us yeah. what's that? See, that's my brother Dean there. Can't as I've said it. Oh fuck, one second. It's all right, mate. It's all right. Take your time. I couldn't find it. It's all right, mate. All right, mate. All right, mate. Okay. All right, have a drink. Take your time. I was just saying that, you know, he used to carry me and all that. And that was in a, in a race at Pontins or something like that, some caravan parking. In real or somewhere, you know, we used to go on holiday to real two weeks in a caravan, and my mum from Liverpool. It's about twenty. It's about twelve miles, <laughs> and my mum used to drive the long way round <laughs> to make you feel you're going abroad. So we thought we'd go further. Yeah. I know you get there in the road signs in a different language, but we're abroad now. <laughs> but um, 
I used to say that he carried me. I was saying in the interview that he carried me, and that's a picture of him carrying me, like, you know. There you go. Too young, 52, same age as me now, and he died. Just, uh... I mean, losing your mum at a young age, losing, losing Dean, does it give you a sense of mortality and you've got to...? <laughs> no, keep looking over my shoulder, you know, Ben. That's <laughs> 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 my turn next, you know what I mean? It's like... Um... Yeah, it doesn't give you a sense of longevity or anything like that, you know what I mean? It's like, I went and got checked up, but I haven't been back for the results. You know you say you don't want to get typecast? <laughs> yeah, but, I, I suppose if they were important, they would ring me, wouldn't they? Yeah. <laughs> really, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, you never came back for them, so we didn't let you, you know, didn't tell you that, you know, your heart's about to explode. Yeah. But, um... Yeah, but I need to go back and get the results. Cos he said it could be genetic, so... Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's weird, cos 52's no age. It's nice seeing him in that picture, cos, like, I say, we used to share a bedroom together and we used to share our hopes and dreams and, like, plans for the future and our disappointments and, and everything, and I'm glad you found that picture. Mm. And I'm glad you had someone like that in your life, cos probably you wouldn't be sat there if you, if you hadn't. Well, maybe not. I think, ladies and gentlemen, that's a lovely way of ending. Well, I think it's been a lovely conversation. Craig, thank you. Cheers. This podcast was brought to you by UKTV Play, the free on-demand service. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.